Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the August issue, Lauren Markham reports on the black market for lumber. While it sounds relatively innocuous, illegal logging, which generates an estimated 50 to $150 billion each year, has serious consequences for the environment on a local and global level. To combat poaching, scientists are developing technology that uses DNA to trace stolen wood back to the original stump. I spoke with Markham about her piece and the communal and forensic nature of this breed of conservation. The issue of tree poaching, if you think about it, makes sense. But again, it's something that unless you're sort of deeply immersed in certain subcultures, environmental subcultures, which you write about in the piece, you'd have no idea that this exists, that it is a problem. And that, as you say, timber trafficking nets 50 to 150 billion dollars a year. Like, how is that? even real like what has led us to this point where that is a reality yeah I mean I was really shocked and I think this is the sort of like that kind of provincialism that happens um sometimes by living in the United States thinking that um some of these global issues are relegated to faraway places so I knew very well like from Ted Conover's writing and um he had a great piece about timber poaching in in the Amazon um and I knew that it happened in sub-Saharan Africa, and I knew that it happened in Southeast Asia, but um, I didn't realize how big of an issue it was here in the United States. And so it's, it's really a global issue. It's a huge issue in Russia and Eastern Europe. And essentially, it's, it's, it's like a matter of regulation. Um, there are international regulations, and then each, you know, m- many countries have local regulations. But the fact is, is that it's a moneymaker, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's also a moneymaker uh, with kind of like low barrier to entry in the sense that like a person, a single person can cut down a few trees in the forest and potentially make like, uh, you know, enough money to certainly enough money to feed their family um, and potentially even more. So it's this interesting thing where it's just like this massive global industry um, where, you know, the, the estimates range, but, you know, the, there's this hu- huge range of estimates, but uh, generally like more, it's estimated that more than half of the global timber trade is, is illegal. Mm-hmm. Or like you know, n- not going through the proper regulations um, in that in that country or or internationally, and um, but it's, it's a huge business, and yet a lot of the people like doing the work day to day are not actually making millions of dollars, right? right? They're actually kind of at the subsistence level. Um, so the reason I think the issue is so big is that a it's a big money maker. So anytime there's a big money maker, um, you know. That, that it will lead to a big a big trade, right? Um, but also, it's it's an income generator for many many people living in you know the highly unequal societies um, and unjust societies, including our own. Right, and I think you know you have well. We'll get to this later, but I mean, I was really struck by the amount of sympathy you had for tree thieves in your piece, and specifically this guy who accidentally starts a giant wildfire while just trying to poach some trees but like I mean how likely is it that the average American owns a piece of furniture or an instrument made out of poached wood yeah my understanding is it's like highly likely (laughs) (laughs) highly highly likely um because you know it's not like it's it's hard to track right and that's part of what the science is trying to do is trying to be able to track it so like there are all sorts of ways that this kind of stuff. So, so for instance, the United States has um, regulations about like what they allow in. If at you know at the southern border a big truck comes in 
with a bunch of wood or let's say at like the port of Oakland near where I live, you know, a big container uh, container comes in on a container ship full of wood. There will be a permit attached to that and sort of saying where this comes from, you know, and the, and the customs officer can kind of check that off. But you could have legal wood on top and then all sorts of illegal wood kind of like, you know, hidden and obscured underneath in the bottom, right? There are no wood sniffing dogs. Exactly. We don't have wood sniffing dogs. It's like, nope, that's cedar from like XYZ place and that's highly (laughs) illegal, right? Or like, no, this is redwood. So, um, so that's part of it is that you can kind of sneak around that. And then what I, what I talk about in the piece is, um, you know, you can like in the United States in the domestic trade, you can have, um, you, you can actually have a permit. So I can, let's say, have gotten a permit for, um, I don't know, a friend of a friend's land to cut trees on a friend of a friend's land, because actually you need, you need per- for some trees, you need permits, even if it's on private land, um, because mm-hmm. the trees are protected. So I could say, okay, a friend of a friend of mine has some land, you know, in Lafayette, California, I get a permit to cut down those trees. I actually go into, you know, I cut down some redwoods in like Redwood Regional Park, right, which is illegal. But I go to the timber yard with my permit that says, yep, I, I have a right to to you know take this tree from so-and-so's land in xyz place so like i basically i've cut down illegal wood but i'm showing a permit that allows me to cut down wood legally i just haven't actually gotten the wood from there and there's not really a mechanism for going to check like did you really get this from that place right tree geneticist is a very specific job title so other than checking down like tree thieves and wildfire starters what does a tree geneticist do Exactly. I mean, I think I think that like actually, it's quite rare that a tree genet there aren't that many tree geneticists um, actually doing the work of sort of tracking this DNA. A lot of tree geneticists are trying to figure out, um, you know, are, are trying to kind of understand what the various genetic adaptations are of various species of trees and not just species of trees, but populations of trees. So like this is something that um, as someone who like hasn't taken science since like basically middle I guess I took a couple science classes in <laughs> Um, that like, you know, that, that was sort of revelatory to me that, you know, there's the redwood, right. is a species, but the adaptations of the redwoods living in, you know, Monterey, California versus living all the way up North, you know, in like way Northern California, um, are, are wildly different. So geneticists, as I understand it, study the sort of the ways that genetic markers manifest themselves and what that means for how the tree uh, often what that means for how the tree kind of like lives and survives in the climate and conditions that they live in. Um, so I actually did a piece for another magazine, Mother Jones, earlier this year about um, about tree geneticists doing um, kind of measuring uh, measuring climate change and how different uh, the different species of trees are adapted to different places um, and different conditions in different places and how we might move trees in advance of those, you know, the coming climate changes to places that in the future will look more like where they need to live now, uh, where they live now. Um, so, you know, tree geneticists are doing all sorts of things. They're sort of, some of them are predicting, you know, what yeah. needs to happen in the future. Some of them are looking at, um, you know, okay, what, what, what are the conditions that make this, this tree survive? Why does this species of tree or this population of, um, you know, cedar is resistant to this pest but these other ones aren't and how, how might we support these other ones to be resistant etc right and i mean w- again because so, you know there's a lot of different climate science yes but aside from sort of this current vogue for uh very nice custom-made wood tables yep. like what what will climate change do to tree poaching 
I mean, it seems. That's a really, really great question. And I don't know, that's actually like not an angle I explored a lot um, in the piece. Um, You know, (laughs) um, so I I guess, I guess I'd say I don't totally know about the kind of like the way the climate change questions overlay with tree poaching, except to say that like our forests are, you know, most of our forests are pretty endangered, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. not, not in the like sort of big E endangered, like on the endangered list way, but um, you know, imperiled, let's say, and and at risk either because of fire or because of pests or, um, you know, because it's just become, it's becoming too hot. Um, So yeah, I'm curious actually, that, that would be an interesting thing to ask some of these, some of these folks. Well, you speak with Richard Krohn. Yes. He's a tree geneticist who refers to his job as TSI, yeah. tree scene investigation. <laughs> and I mean, did you find that he had, you know, a sense of humor about his work or did he regard, you know, tree sleuthing as this, you know, like a serious detective? Yeah. You know, solving, you know, solving yeah. a murder. <laughs> um, no, he's he was so wonderful. I will say he was like one of the most like wonderful um, sources I've, 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 I've worked with and just like <laughs> patient with me, especially with the science. He both takes it incredibly seriously because he sees and understands and believes like tree theft as um, as, as as a big problem, you know, um, and 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 believes in sort of protecting uh, our our forests and our our natural resources and landscapes. But he totally have has a sense of humor about it. I mean, the TSI is like very like tongue in cheek and funny. Um, and so he he's sort of like a great combination of taking his work very seriously and being able to kind of laugh at it. And one of the things that I really do appreciate is that he he takes incredibly seriously the the you know the fact that he's looking into DNA to kind of try to effectively help law enforcement fight these crimes he takes incredibly seriously the fact that um you know what he is doing has the possibility of putting someone in prison right and really altering the course of someone's life and he takes that very seriously and wants to make sure that like the science is 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 airtight right um that that is something kind of like mantle he holds yeah. And I mean, he, Crone compares trees to humans and say both humans and trees have some degree of local history. Mm-hmm. So what did he mean by that exactly? Yeah, what he's essentially saying, and this is his like very generous way of speaking in terms that like <laughs> uh, I, uh, a very, very lay person um, like I, like me might understand. Um, but what he's essentially saying is that within our genetic code, we have some information about where we've come from and the adaptations that we have uh, that are that were developed based on where we come from. So, um, you know, within a genetic code, uh, it might it might, for example, and this is sort of like a very, you know, um, kind of uh, bare bones example, but it, within a genetic code of a tree. So, for example, big leaf maple, we might see, oh, this one is adapted to wetter soil and colder colder climates than this other one that is more adapted though even though it is the same species its genetic code shows that it is happier right and it is adapted Mm. to uh, uh warmer and drier climates right this one will burst bud earlier meaning like get get leaves right like this one once one will burst bud earlier versus this one will burst bud later um you know b- based on where the springtime tends to hit and in the post frost tends to hit in a particular region where it's like suited to and where it it has been living it and his and its ancestors have been living right and i mean you you kind of i mean the you know crone also says that you know trees have 
unique fingerprints and and you know they're they're sort of uh there there's this kind of blurring in this piece between human and nature uh you know because you there you write uh, you write about some trees, quote, they were dressed in thick coats of moss as bright as jewels and dusted with the freshly, freshly fallen snow, their branches curving and bowed as if mid waltz. So do you find, you know, like in writing this piece or just sort of in general in your uh, reporting, do you find yourself personifying nature or sort of messing up this kind of neat boundary that we have between yeah. ourselves and the rest of the environment? Definitely. I mean, I think it's sort of like such a great question. Um, it's it's like it's like a very human centric thing to do to like understand um, and describe trees like uh, in our in our own image. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and I think I'm definitely guilty of that. I do think it is helpful in the science, though, because like I think most humans at this mo most like most readers at this point, like understand uh, the basics of DNA science. So in order to understand the kind of like complex science of the tree stuff, um, it was like a really useful corollary. Um, but I, yeah, so I think like on the one hand, this sort of personification thing, um, is, is sort of like, is, is, can, can be useful in terms of just like, uh, understanding. Um, <clears throat> I think it can also be really human centric, but it also is true that like, why, you know, why, do, and like many people much, um, much wiser than I have like written extensively about this, but you know, w why do we understand humans as so distinct from nature? Right. Like this. Mm -hmm. And in fact, like perhaps that's part of the problem. Like it's like us and nature. Right. Um, as if that divide can possibly be, be, be made. Right. Everyone should have to take mushrooms and hug a tree and see oh, what happens. Oh, Just kidding. I'm not, not actually, not actually recommending that. Um, <laughs> I'm not an of Harper's. I can fully endorse that. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, uh, the, you know, again, sort of this speaking to our relationship with nature, humans are helping trees migrate you know, or migrate forests more quickly now. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's out of harm's way. Other times it's because, you know, uh, I don't know, yeah. somebody needs a new house, uh, even though there are plenty of houses. Um, so are there any other budding innovations like this like tree DNA, tree DNA worth uh knowing about that you know can help people you know protect forests or mm -hmm. you know sort of maintain what we have in the face of the you know the extreme of climate change yeah I mean I think like one of the really interesting things that a lot of tree geneticists are doing in, in the work of climate change like I, again I wrote that piece for Mother Jones about how they're sort of like predicting where okay we need to move this population of trees from this place to this place effectively generally in the northern hemisphere we need to move them north right and so that we'll mm -hmm. have you know the for these, these trees will survive into the future and there's all sorts of like interesting and complicated like predictive you know are we are we looking at 25 years in the future 50 years in the future you know there's so many variables about like what climate change will bring etc um but I think another thing that they're doing is just looking at, like, again, looking at these specific, like climate, climate resilience, um, marker, genetic markers. And I don't know if that's like the correct terminology. I'm sure if a scientist, I'm sure if Khan listens to this, he'll, sorry, Dr. Khan, um, for, <laughs> for <laughs> such a, such a, a, a basic, um, but, um, the like essentially looking for genetic markers within the trees, uh, within the genetic code to sort of say, okay, um, these trees actually 
for some reason, this population of trees tends not to be susceptible to this pest or tends to be more fire resistant. So when we are, for instance, like, you know, where I live in California, we are burning all the time. Um, and so, you know, this whole hillside has been burned. We're going to reforest it. Can we reforest it? Can we uh, plant trees that are more fire resistant or more resistant to this pest that dried them out that made them less fire resistant, right? So I think that um, that in the context of climate change, I think um, that's a lot of what what um, some interesting stuff that I learned that um, scientists are doing and working on. Right. And you're, you know, you, you're based on the West Coast. I mean, uh, what has, you know, has over the I mean, I can't help but think of that insane photo of um, the sky just and the whole, the whole, <laughs> the whole city, okay. Uh, okay. bright, yes. weird, yeah, bright, weird yellow. Uh, I guess, you know, what having lived through, I assume you've lived through wildfires and been affected by them in some way. Like, how, what does most coverage of these fires get wrong? Mm, that's so interesting. It's funny. I um I wrote I wrote a piece um for uh for cjr somewhat about this um because a lot of what you know many of the like bigger media outlets on on the um on the you know that are based on the east coast sort of go immediately to like california has become unlivable you know what i mean like (laughs) immediately to there and it's like it's not that i mean i don't you know uh, when during the time of the orange day um in in 2020 i almost Mm -hmm. fucking lost it you know i was really um that was it was kind of like the last the last, the last straw of that really difficult year. Um, yeah. And was like, can I, you know, I, I born, born and raised here in California, same with my husband. Um, and it was definitely a question of like, can, but, but this idea, you know, like, is, is this, is this reasonable to like not be able to go outside um, and also not be able to go inside because of the pandemic. But, um, mm-hmm. but I think uh, the, the sort of jumping to that, that kind of like um, almost like exoticizing California is just like, wacky far off place you know that happens with housing and happens with our drug policy and our you know all, sor- all sorts of stuff um but i also think that part of the problem is and this is what i wrote about for C- cgr a couple years ago is like that it's it's it, you know and this is all disaster coverage it's like we covered the disaster at the apex of the disaster but then we don't look at like okay what does the rebuilding look like what mm-hmm. you know how does this how what does this look like one year on two years on after a community has been devastated um and then also like what are the interventions happening you know before a fire hits in a community or in a forest or in a landscape to try to um effectively you know uh pre- prevent or minimize right um kind of harm reduce the, the prospect. So I'd love to see more coverage of that. Right. And I mean, I guess, you know, I get, uh, you know, we were talking about this earlier, sort of the the need to sometimes to sort of help get a reader in uh, who's not familiar with a particular subject to kind of personify and kind of bring, bring nature closer to us or blur that line. I mean, how is, you know, how has living with the effects of wildfires kind of changed your attitude toward the environment and toward environmental writing in general? Because it's, again, you like, you rightly point out, it's so disaster focused or I fucking love science yeah. based that you kind of, there's the nuance kind of goes away. Yeah. So that's a, that's a super great question. Um, and, uh, and, and I really appreciate the question. I think one of the things that's fast, you know, I live in, um, in Berkeley, California. So like, um, while there have been fires, um, you know, most notably in 1991, um, that were like, you know, here in, in, in the, like in the more like urban suburban 
Bay Area, um, most of them happen in rural places. But the thing is, like, the smoke doesn't care, right? The smoke will come and ruin things for weeks. And so there is a way that there's something, the, I think the, the one sort of silver lining about wildfires is that you can't, they're not, they're, they're disasters that are not actually just relegated to, like, you can't just sort of relegate them to the place where they happened because, like, the smoke is so toxic and travels. Um, and, uh, and really, I mean, we're all at risk of fire, but there's sort of this, like, reminder, literal reminder in the air of what's happening. So there is, like, almost more of a sort of, like, connective tissue around the issue and the urgency of, um, of, of climate change as related to, like, that, that fire brings out that actually can find some, a little bit of like, um, uh, optimism in like that sort of being more of a driver, right? Like we can't just Mm -hmm. be living in the city being like, that's something sad that happens in the mountains, you know, because like, yeah, there was a day in San Francisco where the sun didn't rise. Right. So, um, like, and that wasn't our fire. That was a fire from, you know, hundreds of miles away. Right. Right. Um, but in terms of how it's like shaped my writing, I mean, this is something that, you know, anyone writing about environmental issues thinks about all the time, like, how do we write about environmental stuff without just like completely shutting people down? How do we not just write like doomsday stories? How do we write? And and I think that that's, you know, why um, I wrote that story, why I was so excited to write that story from Mother Jones, because it's about like an intervention that's like sort of future focused. And I think similar with this um, tree theft piece, it's like, okay, there's this science that might support, you know, the kind of like health and protection of our forests. So I think, you know, without being a Pollyanna about it, I think focusing on like interventions and solutions um, is, is, is really useful. I'll also say though, like the other thing I write about a lot is migration and um, I get stuck in the exact same issue, which is like, just how fucking depressing um, uh, all of, as so much of the news is and so many of the policies are. So um, I think, I think it's a problem in like a lot of social issue journalism. Yeah. And and also I would say, you know, migration, uh, I know certain conservatives don't like to hear this, but it's also, it's being driven by climate change in addition to other, uh, you know, political, social things going on. And it's, and and again, it's, it's such a big problem that to break it down and again, sort of get past that shock is sometimes very difficult. Totally. And, and, but I mean, I think, you know, going back to this, you know, your, your sympathy for Justin Wilkie. Yeah. Who is the, you know, he's, he read about him at the beginning of the piece that he was this guy who lived in a trailer that didn't have running water. Yep. Um, he couldn't really find work. He was like, you, you know, stealing. Yeah, I get, okay, poaching, stealing, whatever, reselling, you know, cutting down these trees and selling them for a fair amount of money. And you write that the forest offers a last ditch haven for those whom society has failed. So I guess, you know, how did you approach writing about his story in a way that, again, uh, is, is deeply sympathetic? Yeah. Um, well, I'm so glad you found it sympathetic because I definitely didn't want this piece to come out and be like, um, the cops got the bad guys, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, thanks to this science. Like, because I think it is more complicated than that. And I would say, I think, I think the, uh, you know, the like forest service officer, um, uh, David Jacobs, who I, um, who I spent some time with as well as the prosecutors, as well as the, um, as the scientists understand it as a more complicated issue. And I think everyone understands that as an issue like twined to poverty. Right. And, and so to me, it's like, 
and this is something I think we're not that good at as a society, but to, like to think about the why, like what was the motivator for this person to do this thing? And it wasn't like, I want to ruin the forest. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and the other thing is like, you, when you think about it, um, like the Olympic national forest is huge. You could spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours driving through this thing. Right. Um, and there's so many trees. And so I can see that I can understand the logic of an individual saying, right, like, I mean, this is like perhaps the tragedy of the commons thing, but like, I can understand the logic of an individual, especially someone who's like incredibly down on their luck and, and who has sort of like been relegated to or living, uh, you know, on sort of like the economic fringes of society saying, well, I'm just going to cut down a couple trees every now and then. Like, what's mm-hmm. the harm, you know? Or like, yes, I understand that there might be some like larger harm and that we can't all do this, but like, I need to pay my rent, you know? Like, yeah. I feel like I don't have gas for my car um, to take my kids to school. Uh, I don't have, you know, so, so, so I guess I just really wanted to make clear in the piece that it's not just this issue of massive corporate greed. Um, although right. I think that there's that dimension. On The individual poachers tend to just be individual people trying to kind of like make a buck. Um, and another thing that I thought about, I didn't write, this didn't end up sort of explicitly in the piece, but like, you know, it used to be, um, and in many like uh, indigenous, uh, contemporary indigenous societies as well, that humans like lived in symbiotic relationship with with the natural world such that, yes, mm-hmm. we cut this tree and we kill this animal and we do this thing, right? And so, so there's a way that it's almost like um, the natural order has been disrupted so greatly that like there's either sort of like clear cutting that happens or like massive protection that is like no one can cut down a single tree. Um, whereas like it used to be that individual humans and like smaller societies or families like we're absolutely, you know, using the natural landscape um, to, for, for, for survival. It's just that um, in our contemporary context, um, it doesn't, you know, we've sort of made that impossible, both, both um, kind of like legally and because we've overexploited, you know, on a massive level, uh, the, the, the natural world. So, you know, Wilkie gets 20 months in prison mm-hmm. because they wanted to make an example out of him. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, I guess in terms, in, in, you know, the, the idea that this would somehow deter other people who are in similar situations seems maybe not the the most effective thing to do and i think you know your descriptions of wilkie and sort of what drove him to do this and accidentally cause this fire i think maybe help you know you can kind of extrapolate that and look at other types of crimes that are perhaps more commonly committed and think a little bit differently Mm. about you know the the criminal justice system or um, mm-hmm. just how to approach people who have been driven to something, to doing something bad right. or quote unquote bad. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like with any sort of like crime, it's like, there's often, you know, it's not just people waking up saying, you know, it'd be fun today. Let's do a crime. Like that's not normally right. Like there's some, right. um, and it, it, especially among, you know, poor people uh, there's often, um, poverty is the motivator for the crime. So yes, I think social programs and um, social safety net stuff and just looking at like general inequality in society is um, absolutely what should be what what should be happening first and foremost. I mean, I think, though, it's important to note that, yes, that that these convictions that what they are hoping is that by sort of publicizing the fact that the science is out there and is happening, it will deter people because it's like, 
before you just needed to sneak into the forest, grab a tree, get out of there without anyone noticing. Right. And like figure out some sort of like snazzy permits workaround, um, which is like relatively easy to do um, mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. Whereas now it's like, actually someone could come in and, te- you know, in the- not like right, right now, but like with the science, it is, it will be possible not too long in the future for someone to be able to test the wood that you're bringing in and say, oh no, that didn't come from where you said it comes from. That came from the Olympic mm-hmm. National Forest, you know? Um, so, so I think that they're trying to publicize, as you say, the fact that the science exists in order to sort of deter people from like, it's really not worth it because the chances of getting caught are suddenly much, much higher than they were when you could just sneak in under the cover of night and grab a tree, right? Not to say that that's easy, by the way, like felling these like huge trees and sneaking them out under the cover of night is actually like, quite skilled work, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, like I couldn't do it. Um, I would have no idea how to do it without probably killing myself. Um, but the other thing that is unfortunate for Mr. Wilkie is, and that we haven't quite named yet, is that, um, you know, in the process of cutting down this one big leaf maple tree, um, he there was some wasps and somebody in that team started a fire it seems um started a fire and that fire burned hundreds and hundreds of acres of forest um so with wilkie but he actually wasn't convicted on that interestingly like he was actually Mm -hmm. acquitted on that point because there wasn't um enough evidence to to show that it was definitely him it was dark the witnesses says we think he started it but no i didn't see it myself right so they're they, they couldn't like prove that beyond a reasonable doubt but i do think that this case became more high profile a because of the DNA and B because people can get a lot madder about like, you know, burning down thousands of trees. Right. right. Um, and like, a, like massive swaths of land, um, like stealing one tree. Right. So right. that he had the misfortune. That was, I, I, I don't think he meant to start that fire. If, if he started it, which he was not convicted on it. Um, whoever started that fire, I don't think he meant to start that fire. They meant to kill the wasps. Right. Right. Well, I mean, and again, that sort of comes back to how we, you know, thinking about reporting wildfires where it's like, you know, the intention, it's in in extremely rare cases, the intention is there, right? It's just, it's, again, there are these multitude of factors that lead to, you know, this immense destruction. But I mean, you know, we've kind of danced around this, but I mean, like, who is buying these trees? Like, yeah. what does this pipeline yeah. look like? Yeah, that's part of the um, that's part of the 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 the, the tr- not the trouble, but it's part of how um, like actually to your first question, I think that you asked about like how does this all work? Like, um, why is this such a big massive, you know, global industry? And it's partially because it's like a guy like Wilkie cuts down some trees, takes it to a local yum- lumber yard. The lumber yard either checks or doesn't check the permit, and how closely they check. Um, or how much due diligence they do. It's sort of, you know, the law is that there has to be a permit and they have to write down the permit number. So then the lumber yard has that. Then there are buyers from the lumber yard and that might be an individual or that might be like a company, for instance, that makes out of Texas, that makes guitars, that contracts with this one lumber yard for this one kind of big leaf maple in, uh, you know, in the Pacific Northwest. And so then that company, you know, will buy from the lumber yard. Um, but if, if it's an international import export thing, then there's like a whole importer side of things. Right. So there are like at least three, if not more, if not many more layers between like tree grows in the forest, like tree becomes a guitar or a table. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's where, you know, the slipperiness of kind of like permit following and kind of like true tree origins um, 
that's where that all comes into play, right? Or that's how that can happen. Right. And I mean, so you you participate in, uh, you undergo adventure scientist training. Yes. Which is, uh, you go out and you help collect tree DNA samples. Yes. So that, you know, again, can sort of establish these things that prevent more poaching. I mean, so what was your training like? Yeah. Yeah, so just like a little bit of info. So Adventure Scientist is like a, um, an, an organization that relies on volunteers to kind of do massive sampling um, for, for the purposes of, of, of science. Um, and, you know, as Kron explains it, he was like for years and, you know, we had the science, like we've had the science of how to sort of map, you know, DNA, um, like to understand where a tree comes from and to like map the DNA between a stump a felled stump in the forest and, and like a piece of lumber to decide like, are they a match? Right. Um, but in order to, you, it's not just a, like, um, you have to have enough denominator, right? Like you can't just do that in a vacuum. You have to create a massive database in order to give you the information about like what markers mean what, right? So in order to create that database, you need a ton of samples and like Dr. Cron at the forest service didn't have, uh, like the, the, the finances bandwidth team to like, collect all of big leaf maple which stretches right. you know from like the entire west west coast right um so they ended up um partnering with an organization called uh, world resources institute and this organization adventure scientists and the adventure scientists idea is like there are people out in the woods all throughout the u.s like all the time you know if we give them a little training, they're going on hikes, they're going kayaking, they're going into these far from places. If we give them a little bit of training and send them the equipment, they can take core samples while they're out there hiking or out there cross country skiing or out there doing whatever it is they're doing. They can get like collect leaf samples. They can, you know, collect this, this DNA. So that's effectively, so th- that's kind of like the, those were the foot soldiers <laughs> collecting all the, um, <laughs> collecting all the DNA that helped make, you know, the, this, um, this comprehensive big leaf maple database possible. And they're currently working on other databases as well. So my training was an online training. It took a few hours. Um, I actually took the online training for black walnut at the time they, they had done, they were done with the big leaf maple um, and they were moving on to black walnut, which is a really beautiful tree that um, hilariously grows basically everywhere except for where I live um, in the United States, <laughs> like everywhere but the West Coast. Um, so so I um, did this training. It was online. I learned to like identify this tree. I learned about like the poaching um, kind of background of this tree and, and how, you know, how much it went for. It's actually like a very, very valuable tree. It's very beautiful. Um, I learned about its habitat. I learned how to identify. And then it's like I was taught online how to do a core sample. I was taught um, how to package it. I was taught how to use their app to like geolocate. So it's like this core sample in their app comes from this place. Um, And then I got on a plane and met up with a group of people in Texas, um, in East Texas, like truly like basically spitting distance from the Oklahoma border. Um, Mm. And we set to work finding some some, uh, black walnut trees, taking core samples, getting twigs, and sending those to adventure scientists so that they would have, you know, like DNA samples from that area to help them round out their database and understand the kind of um, the, 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 the breadth of DNA and uh, uh, like uh, the, sort of like how the ge- genetics um, look over the entire habitat range, which then allows them to do this work of sort of understanding like, OK, then 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 h- how do we make a match between a stump and, a, and an individual tree? Right. And I mean you write a little bit about your fellow taggers, but um, 
the experience i would love to hear more about that experience yeah it was really fun um so i yeah i flew i flew to dallas and then had a couple hours to drive i met them early in the morning and they're all um there there's an uh kind of like a it's almost like a 4-h type thing um type type group and it's called texas master naturalists and um, all of these folks, a lot of them were ranchers, um, living ranchers and farmers living in far east Texas, um, and they all had like a real environmental kind of like leaning, and so they uh, volunteered um, to be part of Texas Master Naturalists, and that they would basically like learn about and do service projects um, related to the environment where you know in and around where they lived. Um, so when they found out about the adventure scientist thing, they're like, this is a perfect project for us. Like we have black walnuts here. You know, this is about like protecting the earth as one woman said, you know, I want to protect the earth. I want to keep what we have. Um, and so I went out, I think there were about seven of them, um, and me, they're very gracious. Let me tag along. They're all, you know, I was, um, the youngest by far, they're all in their sixties and seventies. Um, and we're chasing around the woods looking for black walnut. Um, and the funny thing is black walnut are these like really tall, really beautiful trees. Um, and one of the things you have to get is like, is a twig. Um, but like these, the trees that we found, like the twigs were so high up, like the branches were so high up that to get a twig down, we had to like lash a rock to a piece of pea cord and like <laughs> throw it up like, you know, 30 feet. And so we spent a really long time just like watching one another, try to throw a rock to hit the, a tiny rock to hit this tiny twig such that it would fall and then track it. And honestly, actually we failed. We didn't get the twig sample from that. We got the core sample. We got some other stuff, but we didn't get the twig. Um, but it was pretty cool walking around with um, a bunch of people who are from that area who are also learning about um, this, this DNA and learning about this particular tree that they didn't know that much about in spite of the fact that, you know, they lived among it. And I mean, is there for people who live near forests and are interested, is there an easy sort of way to join this oh, yeah. this cause? Absolutely. Go sign up for Adventure Scientists. Um, you, it's really clear. It's like sign up to be a volunteer and they sort of show what current projects they're looking for for folks um, to help with. Um, it's really pr- pretty easy and, and pretty, pretty wonderful. And it's not, and they don't, and I should say they don't just do, they've done, you know, they've taken like, ice samples in certain places to like help with like glacier climatology and they've taken it's not just for this tree theft project um they have other other projects as well kind of leveraging the people power of people getting out into the woods right and i mean uh you you obviously enjoyed your journey your 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 trip out to the to the forest will you continue to help with tree identification you know i don't know yeah, I, I don't know. I definitely I definitely enjoyed it. Um, and it definitely feels like I, I have told a lot of people, especially like like my father in law, for instance, like does a ton of hiking. Um, and I've definitely kind of like been encouraging other people like, oh, you should check this out, because if you're already like doing the Pacific, like a part of the Pacific Crest Trail, like take some core samples while you're at it. Um, I don't know, you know, what my involvement will will, will be, but um, I definitely found it like inc- incredibly interesting and exciting. Well, thank you so much. This is such a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times called Harper's America's most interesting magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine 
and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org save to subscribe for only $16.97.